This morning we have um, a wonderful, with all wonderful privilege of hearing the Word of God from Pastor Joe Kim. Uh, he is married to Juliet. Um, Juliet and, and I were um, at the university together for a year. She was in grad school and I was an undergrad. And, and through her, um, I, I met Pastor Joe probably for the first time in, in Atlanta many years back at, at a conference. Um, he has um, obviously a wife and, and two children, Isaiah and, and Evan, and uh, they're in California right now as they renew their visa, as they raise support for the work that God is doing um, in Japan. He's um, the vice president of Christ Bible Seminary. He's, uh, he's been out in uh, Nagoya, Japan for the past four or five years, um, working with a ministry out there sent out by Mission to the World, which is a Presbyterian Church in America's missions arm. Um, and they're threefold focus of their ministry was one, there's a seminary, which is the second largest evangelical seminary in Japan, um, training um, native leaders, um, pastors. He's also, they started a cafe called the Heart and Soul Cafe Japan. Uh, Japanese people love coffee. And apparently he was saying this is like high, high quality coffee. If they were to sell it um, anywhere else, it would be like $15 a cup, but they sell it at cost, nonprofit, um, and just build relationships there. And then um, he's also started, a, they've started a church called All Nations Fellowship. For those of you who remember, a sister here, Kyoko Masuda, who was here, um, she left, um, she was a ballet dancer here with the Orlando Dance Company and moved to Nagoya to um, be a dance instructor. For a couple years, she was under the care of Pastor Joe and grew so much in so many ways and um, just loved the work that God was doing there. God has called them and their passion for young people less than Less than a quarter of a percent of people in Japan profess the name of Jesus Christ. So if that was all of us in here, uh, less than one of us would be believers if this was Japan, right, ratio-wise. Um, and their heart for the next generation and for young people is moving him out to Osaka, Japan, which is the second largest um, city in Japan. They'll be starting um, Genesis College, which is um, just an amazing vision that God give, has given to them. And um, he will share more about that. Um, but before Joe comes up, Pastor Joe comes up, um, we're going to watch a little video of some of the work that's being done out there. So let's turn our attention here. Thank you. Uh, let me get my brother the phone here. Oh, got it. Hope you have that memorized. Okay, thank you. So glad to be here with all of you today. Um, one of the reasons I showed a video of our previous ministry is because we haven't started our new work yet, so the second video is just buildings and people. So we haven't really done anything there yet. So, <clears throat> so we wanted to just uh, give you a vision and just to kind of see what, uh, what we've been doing. So what I'm going to do today is just talk a little bit, maybe just three, four minutes about Japan, just give you a general overview, and then invite you to come afterwards. So one thing about Japan is to under Japan you have to understand Japan you have to understand space. So Japan has 127 million people, and the U.S. has about 330 million people, and the actual space in Japan is roughly the size of Montana, in the yellow up on your left. So that's a little bit less than than the state of California in terms of uh, size. The actual arable land, the farmable land, is roughly 11 percent of that which is roughly New Hampshire and Vermont together. Uh, the majority of Japan is not livable. It's mostly uh, volcanic rock and, and the like. So the actual livable space in Japan out of Montana is roughly the size of Massachusetts in red. Now, Massachusetts is like the fifth or sixth most densely populated state in America. And it has, I think, six and a half million is the population of Massachusetts. 
127 million Japanese people live in a space the size of Massachusetts. So you think the population density is uh, almost 20 times greater. And so to understand Japan, that becomes really important. What happens when you have so many people living in such a small space? If you take uh, the, the land, the total amount of land and divide it by all the people in Japan, Japan is not the most densely populated nation in the world. But if you take the actual livable space, which is what you should do, and divide it, Japan is by far the most densely populated nation on Earth. Um, the train station that you saw there is Osaka Station. And Osaka Station is the second busiest train station in the world. In that, like, I don't know how big it is, but in that space, 1.8 million people go through that train station every day. Almost 2 million people go through there every day. Uh, there's a train station in Tokyo called Shinjuku. 2.2 million people go through that station every day. Every single day. So what you see there, the pictures, that's just normal. That's not even rush hour. Uh, that's what it looks like uh, during the opening hour. So. so to kind of understand what it's like to reach uh, this people, the density becomes really important. So imagine if everyone's living so close together, you have to come up with social customs, uh, cultural mores to, to not kill each other. Right? So imagine, you're so crowded, you're right next to each other. So you end up isolating yourself emotionally, number one. Number two, you end up not looking up when you walk because. So it's kind of awkward, like if I'm walking and like I'm like staring at him in the eye, and then there's another guy and another guy, and we're staring at everybody in the eye. That's kind of awkward. Or what if we're on a train? Uh, this, is, this is very normal on a train, you know? <laughs> And so, what happened? Can you look up for a second? It's kind of awkward, you know. <laughs> so you come up. With, thank you. So you come up with uh, you come up with ways to protect yourself, and the way you do that is by looking down. And nowadays they have cell phones, but they did this even before the age of cell phones. You just look down, and it creates this kind of isolating, this kind of feeling, because it's just culturally, it's it's just not appropriate to just look up and look at someone's eyes. I mean, even here, but here we have some space. And so you and just so the culture is like that, and so the culture is kind of developed around that sort of a space. The farming culture of Japan from the last three thousand years that that culture it, it's still there, but uh, in terms of major urban areas, uh, the culture has changed. Uh, Japan, out of one hundred twenty-seven million people, fifty-five million of those people live in just three areas: the Tokyo area which has 36 million people, roughly the size of Canada, a little bit bigger than all of Canada in terms of population. Osaka has 17 to 18 million in the metro area. Nagoya has roughly eight. So about 50 or so million people live in just three areas in Japan. So out of the most densely populated nation on earth, imagine the most, so think of Massachusetts, 127 million people live there. And roughly 40% to 45% live in just three areas. You can just imagine how densely populated uh, the cities are. Uh, why am I telling you this? Because when you do ministry in Japan, you could go from one train station, walk four blocks, and be in another area with 200,000 people. Now just think about that. <clears throat> uh, Japan has one Christian worker per 150,000 people. That's the second lowest rate in the world after closed Islamic countries, which is one per half million. Actually, it used to be one per million until people, we've really been pushing Islam in terms of um, a missionary agencies. So one in 150,000 people. So in some sense, my wife and I, for us two Christian workers, there are 300,000 Japanese people um, we need to be responsible for. Now, that's a huge and daunting task. Uh, the church is very, very small, very, very irrelevant to society. Next slide. 
So we sit kind of in an interesting time in East Asia where I live. Uh, China is the second largest economy in the world after the USA. Japan is the third largest economy in the world. And South Korea now is number 11, the 11th largest economy in the world. So three out of the top 11 richest countries in the world are right next to each other. And they surround North Korea, the poorest nation on Earth, where almost uh, one million people died of starvation about six years ago. Now just think about that. Uh, North Korea only has 25 million people, and one million of them died of starvation. I mean, just absolutely devastating. And so that's our region in those four countries. You have number two wealth, number three wealthiest, number 11 wealthiest, and then the poorest nation on earth right there. But if you look at the Christian percentages, China right now has roughly 120 million Christians, and that number is growing exponentially. 9% of China is Christian. Can you believe that? 9%. Um, China right now is going to surpass the U.S. and Korea in the next 10 years as the largest mission-sending nation on earth. It's just amazing what the Chinese are doing. And in the midst of a government that uh, allows churches, but only state churches. So the majority of the Christians there are underground Christians, underground churches. Uh, South Korea, roughly 25% Christian rate. Church attendance rate is almost 50% in Seoul. And so you kind of need to go to church in Korea if you want to like run a business or need a spouse or whatever, right? So, um, <clears throat> so that's 25% in South Korea. In North Korea, surprisingly, the Christian percentage there is between 2 to 2.5%. Two even though there are zero churches there. A completely oppressive totalitarian government. Why? Through the work of Korean missionaries in between the China and the North Korea border, they've been doing radio ministries. And so incredible how many Christians, how many North Koreans have been coming to faith simply by radio. They do like these little drops where they send stuff over uh, rural areas. And uh, just been really, really, really encouraging. Uh, the United States... This is not obviously the Christian percentage, but the people that check themselves off as Christian in a census form is 51%. So I'm not sure what the actual Christian percentage is, but it's, it's very high. You know, let's say even a third of these people are Christians, uh, true Christians. That's still a very, very high percent. Uh, next slide. What about Japan? So in 2009, a Japanese agency took a poll of the Christian. Uh, it's actually not the Christian percentage. This is a church attendance percentage. The Protestant church attendance percentage in Japan is 0.22. Uh, the Catholic is roughly 0.1, and the Christian percentage is roughly half to quarter of that. And the evangelical Christian percentage is lower than that. So roughly you can say 1 in 1,000 Japanese people are Christian. Now what does that mean practically? So you know Kyoko. Uh, Kyoko was part of All Nations Fellowship through your pastor's recommendation. She came, and uh, we got to know one another and really, really been blessed and encouraged by her. Someone like her is a very common story. Actually, most of our, my seminary students are this way too. Imagine you're, the only, you're a Christian, you become a Christian, and you're the only Christian amongst your thousand closest friends, business colleagues, relatives. Your parents aren't Christians. Your cousins aren't Christians. Your coworkers aren't Christians. Your friends aren't Christians. Um, the people you went to school with aren't Christians. You don't know a single Christian except for the people that go to your church. And the average size of a church is roughly 20 to 25 people, mostly over the age of 60. So it is tough being a Christian in Japan. And imagine you being the only one. And so what happens? Again, think of space, think of that. You end up actually becoming tentative because you have no fellowship, no encouragement, and you end up just wanting to hang out with your group. And as that group gets older, and, uh, and Japan has a lot of different social problems. People aren't getting married. Um, people aren't having children. So there's less and less young people. And so they've just become this kind of insulated group. Uh, Japanese are wonderful. Japanese Christians are wonderful. Um, they excel in things like faithfulness, uh, service, but they do not excel in things like, uh, generally, in things like going out and really passionately sharing the gospel because that would be considered rude in Japan. Again, think of the space. 
to go talk to someone you don't know is extremely rude. It's akin to like sitting next to someone eating a meal and just say, hey, that looks good. I'll have a bite of that. It's like that. It's very, very strong. So just think about it. It's built into the culture, which is why Japanese actually become better evangelists when they leave Japan. And then they go back into Japan and they conform that way. So, so that's the nation we serve. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about what we're hoping to do uh, with Genesis College. So uh, please come afterwards and I'll share more. Let me pray quickly and uh, we'll hear the word of the Lord today. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, body of believers. Thank you for the youth group, the college students, the singles, the married adults, uh, the parents. Thank you that this church and their leaders, uh, Pastor David, Pastor Albert, have really made a commitment to the good news of Jesus Christ and that this good news is not to be kept to ourselves but to go forth to the ends of the earth because we desire your name to become famous. We desire your name, Lord, um, to be the most known name on this earth until you return. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. And as we share this word, be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to talk to you just very briefly about worship. And the title of my message is True Worship, Acts versus State. And uh, this, I've probably preached this sermon maybe 15, 20 times, uh, this passage before I went to Japan. And about two years ago, as I was examining this passage, um, it's, it's, something changed. And I thought, there's, 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 something, there's something that Jesus is trying to get at here that, I, that I've been missing out on. And so I just want to share with you what I've been, um, just what the Lord's been teaching me in this area. You know, one thing that we can ask is, what makes us different from animals? In a lot of ways, we are like animals. I think the DNA difference between a chimpanzee and a human is like just a few percent, you know? Um, so, like, we need to go to the bathroom, we need to sleep, we need to eat. Uh, even chimpanzees, we need to live in communities. We uh, need touch. You know, humans need touch. You know, we need to be touched by people we love. Um, if you heard the song there, that's actually a Korean song, translated in Japanese. And the title is basically, You Were Born to Be Loved. Um, the reason that you, were, you, you exist is not to do something, but the main reason why you exist is to be loved by somebody. But what if you didn't know that? What if you weren't loved? And so um, that's one of the main things that different, differentiates us from the animals. Um, not only were we born to be loved, but we were made to worship. We were made to worship. Now, in some sense, everybody worships someone or something, right? What is that? Anything that consumes, anything that fills, anything that um, is sort of the goal of the desires of your life, that is worship. You know, and for most people, it's us, right? We are the goal, the desire, the reason that we do things. So for most of us, we worship ourselves. Um, for others, it could be something else. Here is a definition of worship that I really like. William Templeton said this of worship. He said, Worship is to quicken your conscience with the holiness of God, to feed your mind with the truth of God, to purge your imagination with the beauty of God, to open your heart to the love of God, to devote your will to the purposes of God. And if you just substitute God with something else, it's very, very easy to see that we worship something. I mean, you could even put your name there, uh, to quicken your conscience with the holiness or the characteristics of Joe. My name's Joe. Uh, to feed your mind with the truth of Joe to purge your imagination with the beauty, well, maybe not the beauty, but with the, um, <laughs> with, the, with, the, with, 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 the, with the good things of Joe, to open your heart to the love of Joe, to devote your will to the purposes of Joe. If I do that, what am I doing? I'm just living for myself. And according to William Templeton's de definition, I'm actually worshiping me. 
I'm worshiping me. Because my goals, my desires, the things that I do are pointed towards me. And you can extend it out towards me, towards my family, towards my church, towards my people, towards my whatever. And so worship actually becomes one of the central tenets of the Christian life. And so Jesus recognized this. Uh, If you have your Bibles, or just look here, next slide. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. And so there's kind of three things that I'd like to talk to you here. Matthew chapter 22. So Jesus is with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. And, you know, they weren't evil people. They were people that obeyed the law very well, in fact. And they loved to read the scriptures, and they loved to just follow the things that the scripture said. And so the Pharisees were very, very upset that Jesus was disturbing their order. And so what he would do is he would go around telling people, teaching people, doing these things. And they said, we got to get this guy. This guy's like ruining it. You know, he's not worshiping God the right way. And we have to get him. And so, verse 15, Then the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap him in their words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. They said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. So tell us, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You might be wondering, well, what's the trap here? So here's the trap. Let me me break it down for you. If Jesus says, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, what happens? There is an authority greater than Jesus. And who's that authority? Caesar. And so what that means is they can say that, Jesus, your ministry is worthless. Your words that you are the son of God, that you are a follower, that's worthless because there is somebody greater than you. You are under the authority of Caesar. You have to listen to what he says. So if he says, yes, they got him, his ministry becomes worthless. What if he says, no? You don't have to pay taxes. Ah, you're not a law-abiding citizen. And if you don't pay taxes to Caesar, what happens? You get to be put in jail. And if you're in jail, then your followers can't follow you, and you're going to be irrelevant. In fact, you could even be put to death for not doing this. So two choices. If you say yes... Your words become irrelevant. Your message becomes useless. If you say no, we can put you in jail. Oh, they got him. And they must have been so excited. You say yes or you say no. You say any of these things and we got you. You could just imagine them being so excited. We got this guy. We got this guy. So which is it, Jesus? Is it yes or is it no? And you could just uh, see it. They're just like excited to get him to um, confess this. But, verse 18, But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? See, he was God himself, the Son of God. So he knew their hearts, and he knew exactly what they were trying to do. Then he says this, he says, Show me a coin. And they brought him a denarius. This is like just a small um, denomination. They said, and he, Jesus says, Whose portrait is this? Whose picture is on this coin? Whose inscription? And they said, it's Caesar's. And then listen to what he said. He says, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then you give to God what is God's. And then they stopped. And they were amazed. In fact, they were so amazed, they left him and they went away. Now you might be wondering, what's so amazing about that? You know, so let me break it down for you. Um, See, they wanted Jesus to answer yes 
and no. And what was his answer? His answer was yes and yes. What was he trying to say? See, he was trying to point out this. His answer. First, next slide. He avoided their trap by acknowledging that we are under two separate authorities. We are not under one, but we were under two separate authorities. A lower authority, that's Caesar. You give the things that belong to Caesar. And that coin taxes those things. But you give something else to God, something even greater than that. And what is greater than that? I suspect, we don't know for sure actually because the passage doesn't go any further than this. I suspect if someone said, um, Jesus, I'm a, I'm a little bit slow. I wasn't a very good student. Um, tell me, what do we give to God? And I suspect Jesus would say these words. He would say something like, go look in the mirror and tell me whose inscription do you see? That belongs to God. And see, this passage, I believe, is pointing us to this idea. And the idea is, is that every person has a stamp, an inscription, something that says you belong to somebody else. The coin has the mark of Caesar, but you have another stamp. And whose stamp is that? Is that your parents? No. Is that your school, your employer? No. The Christians believe that we are made in the image. We are made in the image. We have the imprint. We have the inscription of God in our lives. And so what Jesus is saying is that you do your jobs, you know, you kids, you guys do your homework, right? Don't cheat on tests. Uh, don't cheat on your taxes. You know, pay the toll, the annoying tolls that landed for the first time. And it's like, this might change. So I have to take one of those envelopes, you know, to mail a check. I don't know if you do that, but actually you're supposed to do that. Anyway, so do that, you know. Uh, drive roughly the speed limit. Um, follow the rules is what Jesus is saying. But he's saying, don't forget As you're following the rules, there's another authority on your life. And that authority has a hold on your life because you bear his imprint. You are like God. And that's what makes you different from the animals. And if we forget that, if we forget that, if we forget that, then worship simply becomes an act. You see, the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus to admit that doing things... That, that the life we live is, just, is just, just an act. And so you could do that act and you could walk away. But Jesus wouldn't let that. He was dialing it up to say, what you do is simply a reflection of who you belong to. And if you belong to yourself, you are going to do actions that will reflect you. And yet, if you recognize that you belong to God and you belong to the creator of the universe... You belong to the one who created you for one purpose and one purpose alone, to give and reflect the glory of God that is in your life. If you recognize that, then even mundane acts like paying taxes become not an act, but it becomes a state that you are in. So here's the battle. Uh, Just quickly, here's the battle. So we have this battle, and, and this battle is within our souls. And this battle impacts you as a Christian. And if you're not, then uh, we hope it can impact you one day. In Genesis 1.26, it says, God said, let us, why is that plural? 
Well, we believe the Trinity was there even from the very beginning. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, the Hebrew actually is plural. Let us. God says, let us together make man in our image, in our likeness. Which means that every person that has been created, in some sense, is reflecting the glory of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So, that's the first part. Second part, Psalm 8.4. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made humans, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. Here is the battle, my friends. The battle, as we look at these words, worship becomes something very, very grand. It becomes something big because my life is worship. But the battle for those of us who follow Jesus Christ is this, that we've taken this grand thing, this beautiful, this uh, awe-inspiring, this powerful notion of worship, which is that my life is worship, and we've reduced it to acts. Here's an example. Um, Those of you who are married, or if you have parents, you may not know who your parents are, but everyone has parents, and and they say something like, um, uh, I love you. And you answer back, yeah, you know, haven't I shown you? I, I clean my room, I, and I take care of our daughter. And you start listing all the things that you do. How's that going to make you feel? Like, oh, great, yeah, you've done 10 out of the 12 requirements of love. Now I know that you love me. <laughs> no. No. In a lower way, to say that you are a part of my life. You know, husbands and wives, a lot of times they say stuff like, you know, I belong to you. You don't really belong to them. But, you know, what they mean is like, my heart belongs to you. It won't go to anyone else. That is what makes love powerful because it's exclusive. And worship is the same way. And when we do reduce uh, the, the grand notion of worship to simply the things that we do, we are cheapening it. We are cheapening it. And some of us, we have to be careful in our words. We say like, okay, now it's time for worship. And that's true, actually. You know, that, that, that's right. Or uh, I listen to worship music. That, that's true. I mean, there is worship music, right? Or I'm going to worship. Again, that's true as well. But here's the thing. Next slide. We have to be very careful in how we say this because... Um, next slide, sorry. Just talk about that. That the acts of worship are necessary they are not sufficient to be in a state of worship. What does that mean? It means that you could do all the right things of worship. You could lead songs. In fact, as a pastor, you could even preach. You could even be a missionary. And you could tell people of the name of Jesus. You could lead tens of thousands to Christ. You could give all your money away. You could even give your body away. You could do all these things and still fail to worship God. You could do all the things prescribed in the Bible, every act that's prescribed in there, and still fail to worship God. How is that possible? Because see, we could continually just reduce worship to an act, whether it's reading the Bible, doing our devotions, and, and those things are important. You must have acts of worship to be in a state of worship. In other words, it, you, you need to come to church. It's important. You know, we have to pray. We have to read God's word. We have to share the gospel with our friends, our family, our co-workers. You know, we have to serve other people. We have to wash the feet of others. The Bible commands all these things. 
But remember, just because you do those things does not mean that you are worshiping God. And that's the idea, I believe, that Jesus was trying to get at. What he's trying to say is, who are you? Show me who you are. Why do you exist? Why do you exist? Is it because your parents decided to reproduce? Is that why you exist? Well, yeah, okay, that's one reason why you exist. But why do you exist? According to the Word of God, you exist because God made you. Before you were born, He knew you. And He has a purpose for your life. And until you worship God, until you make God that central point of your existence, you will not be able to see what he has for you. And you might be thinking, how do I do that? You know, it's come to church, we do these things. I'm an accountant. I balance budgets. That's not very worshipful. That's the wrong way of looking at it. See, the way to look at it is this, is, God made me a certain way. And where I am right now, how can I reflect the glory of God right here, right now? And it's very easy when we're singing songs, right? You just do what Albert tells you to do, right? Just sing the songs, you know? But at home, how do you reflect the glory of God? While you're doing your work, how do you reflect the glory of God? When you're doing your homework, does God really care about calculus? or trigonometry, or Spanish, <laughs> you know? Like, how do you, how do, you do that? And the idea is, is this, that right here at this moment, God is giving me an opportunity to worship Him, to glorify Him, to make the goal of what I do Him, not me. In that case, everything, almost everything can be worshipped. Once this concept is changed, what happens is, is that worship, one, becomes more accessible to everybody because you don't need to meet the requirements of any church to worship God. You don't need to wear a suit on Sundays. You, know? you don't need to uh, follow whatever the, 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 the rules that people have. Not that those are bad rules, but it's not necessary to do those things to worship God. And yet, but in another way, so first it makes it accessible to everybody, but in another way it makes worship much, much harder because you find out that you could go to church, do all these things, and still fail to worship God, completely fail. You could be a pastor and devote your life to preaching and teaching and still fail to worship God. This is a challenge for me. I'm a missionary. The sole purpose of my job is to tell people about Jesus and to disciple them. I could do all those things and fail, and completely fail to worship God. And that's an incredibly sobering thought. It's incredibly sobering. This is why this is our battle. Right, next slide. Sorry, right before this. You know, this idea, worship is both a means and an end. Uh, this is a very, very important idea. You know, so for most of us, worship becomes just, um, just the means. And what it is is, okay, I'm doing things for God, which is why we reduce worship to church. If it's of God, then it's worship, because I can come on Sunday, worship God, and that's the reason. Why. But like, if I'm balancing my budget at work, or if, I don't know, let's say you have to make coffee for your coworkers at work, if I have to do that, 
or you have to change your kid's diapers or drop your son or daughter off at school. I mean, how's that worshipful, right? That doesn't serve anything. But there is an end to that. And the end is to reflect who God made you to be, which is the image of God in your life. So it's entirely possible to worship God as you're driving. Why? Because then you reorient your perspective. This is why I'm doing this. Not because my kid is a good kid. Not because I have some duty to him. You do have a duty to him. It's not good. But the real reason is, is that God has given me this opportunity today. That's the real reason. And when you start discovering that, it's amazing. It's amazing because you start seeing God's fingerprint, not only in your life, but in the areas around you. You start looking at your coworkers, not as that annoying guy or annoying girl. You look at them as someone that was also made in the image of God, but they don't know it yet. And God has placed you there to be the messenger. You look at your child, not as this creature to bring up in your own image to do what you want to do, but you see this child as someone who's made in the image of God and say, how can this child reflect the glory of God? Not because this child is my, my DNA, my offspring, it's but because God made this child. Things change. Your customers don't become people that you're trying to extract a profit from. I mean, obviously, you should do that too if you have customers. Your customers become people who also are created in the image of God. The police officer who gave you a ticket for speeding, that person is also created in the image of God. Your teachers, the people that you see in a store, everything changes then because your perspective changes. And that's simply what I want to offer you today, is to pray for this perspective. Last one. The, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's good news why. It's good news why. Not only can sinners be redeemed, not only can we uh, have a new life in Jesus Christ, but here's the thing. Uh, when the gospel, when the good news of Christ comes into your life and you know who Jesus is, you start discovering why you were made in the first place. And it doesn't matter if you had really good parents or if your parents abandoned you. It doesn't matter if you have a great education and make a lot of money or you make no money at all. You figure out, why was I made? And it's because of God. He wanted this imprint in my life. Now I have to figure out his fingerprints in my life. Which is why the gospel is good news. It's good news because we discover who we really are. And that's worship. Let's pray together. You know, the word of God says this. It says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And what that means is not only can we enter into the presence of God, not only can we worship God, but that our lives become um, our lives become a discovery process of this is why I was made to worship. Friend, if you have a challenge in your life, if you are battling sin, it is not more effort that is going to take you out of that sin. If you are a Christian and you are having a marital issues or issues with your child, again, it is not because of effort that your marriage, that your life will change. To be transformed we have to dial up uh, the worship in our lives. We have to take the goal of why we do these things and change it completely and to recognize that God made us this way. And that is my prayer for our ministry in Japan. It is my prayer for you. It is my prayer for me. 
that worship becomes not just what I do, but it becomes the goal, the reason I exist. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you, Jesus, that because of this, we're not simply just bound by rules and traditions, but that worship can happen because we are made in your image. And in that sense, this entire world will not be satisfied until they learn to worship you. Um, that we ourselves will not be satisfied with a new job, will not be satisfied uh, with a new marriage, will not be satisfied with a new house. Every single thing that we can conceive of, in one sense, falls empty. Because we were not created, Lord, to just simply have things, but we were created, Lord, to reflect you. So I pray for that. If there's any person here, Lord, who is struggling with sin, I pray, Father, that you convict them uh, to turn from their ways, not by simply just trying harder, but by increasing the worship in their lives. If there's any person here, Lord, who is struggling in their families or struggling with how they can be a more effective worker, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you dial up the gospel in their lives so that they could recognize, so that we could recognize, Lord, that we were made to worship. Show us your fingerprints in our lives, in our everyday lives, Lord. Because as we heard from the song, uh, we were born to be loved. 